We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. You can find the text that we're going to be reading printed in your bulletin, Mark chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 46. This is our last week, uh, in, not in the Gospel of Mark, but in chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've actually been in chapter 10 of Mark for several weeks. And one of the things that's kind of began to strike me as we've worked through chapter 10 of Mark is how anti-American dream this chapter of Mark feels. And it's challenging to me as I think about how to apply this to my own life. It's challenging because I know if it's making me uncomfortable, if it's exposing my idols, then it's probably making you uncomfortable and exposing some of your idols as well. Uh, It's an interesting chapter because I think it challenges both those of us who would consider ourselves to be more conservative and those of us who would consider ourselves to be more liberal as well. Uh, In this chapter, Jesus says that, that, that we're created male and female, that marriage is intended for a man and a woman, that you shouldn't get divorced for any and every reason, that you have to receive the kingdom of God like a child to get into it, that it's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven, and that greatness is found not in status, but in giving up our lives and serving others. I'm sure uh, we can all find something in that list that bugs us a little bit. But I argue that if, if something in that list bugs us, it's bugging us in part because of our inability to see who Jesus is. And to see that He is the the treasure that we need. And to see that His words are the words that we need to hear and to listen to. I'm not a huge baseball fan. I'm a little bit of a baseball fan. But the Cubs were in the World Series, right? And, and, And they hadn't won the World Series since before sliced bread was invented. And that's that's literally true. Um... But, and, so, and so I got into it. I was watching them a little bit. And over the last three games of the World Series, it seemed like it was becoming apparent to everybody but the Cubs manager that he was pitching his star relief pitcher too much. Everybody noticed this. Everybody could see this. Man, you're wearing that guy out. And it almost came back. To, it did come back to bite him, but they, they managed to win anyway. But it was like he was blind to it. He couldn't see what everybody else could see. In Mark chapter 10, there seems to be this this blindness. The rich young ruler who we encountered a few weeks ago is blind to the fact that Jesus is more valuable than all the wealth that he has. Uh, A week or two ago, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, are, are blind to the fact that Jesus has come not to be served but to serve, and they're blind to the to the implications that that has for their lives. The, the crowds are blind to the reason that Jesus has really come. They're just here for this big event, for the coronation of the Messiah, they hope. No one seems to be able to see who Jesus really is and what he's really about. And then in this very last story of chapter 10 that we're about to read, somebody gets it. Somebody finally sees. And the person who sees is a blind man. A blind man sees. A blind man uh, uh, sees what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's what I think we get. I think this is a picture Mark gives us. As Jesus is about to start in chapter 11, heading toward the cross, he's showing us a picture of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. And, and I hope you'll see that today. What would it look like for me? What does it look like for me 
to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's read this together. Mark 10, or excuse me, I'll read it and you can listen, uh, but follow along with me. Mark 10, beginning in verse 46, this is God's word. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this picture of faith and discipleship. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see. Uh, what a disciple of Jesus truly is. I, I pray that you give us eyes to see Jesus and be drawn to him and desire to follow after him. And I ask in his name, amen. So the blind man sees something that other people aren't seeing and this leads him to believe and to leave and to follow. To believe and to leave and to follow. Those are the three things I want us to think about. A disciple, first of all, is somebody who believes. Who believes. Verse 46, we've got a blind beggar named Barnabas uh, sitting by the roadside. And he hears that Jesus is coming along. And so he shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And some of the people tell him, hush up, man. Don't, Don't bother Jesus right now. But he keeps crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I think that cry in and of itself is a picture of belief, a picture of faith, just as our prayers are a picture of our belief and our faith and our silence, our lack of prayer at at times is a picture of our lack of faith. Bartimaeus exercises faith, but not just any old type of faith. It's faith in a particular specific person. His faith is directed toward Jesus, the Son of David, the Messiah. Jesus, he cries, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Why does he cry that? Why does he cry out in this way? And why does he cry out to Jesus? He cries out because he's blind, but he sees, he's starting to see. He believes that that Jesus can actually make him well. He cries out, not, Jesus, come give me what I deserve. Jesus, come give me what I have earned. But he cries out, Jesus, have mercy on me. He cries out because he is very aware of his own brokenness. And yet he sees that Jesus is the one that he needs. Have you seen that yet? Have you seen that yet? That is is beautiful or smart, as talented as any of us may be. And you are beautiful, smart, talented people. But, but, but as true as any of that is about any of us, we're all broken. We're all broken. Uh, the Avid Brothers have a song called True Sadness, and the chorus goes this way. 
Because I still wake up shaken by dreams, and I hate to say it, but the way it seems is that no one is fine. Take the time to peel a few layers, and you will find true sadness. Some of us get that. Some of us get that, but we're convinced that there's just nothing that can be done about it. It's just the way that it is. And the best that we can hope for is maybe an occasional escape. Some of us turn to, to alcohol to dull the sadness. Some of us may turn to cutting or, or, or know those who have turned to cutting themselves to deal with the sadness. Uh, Anne Voskamp in her book, The Broken Way, writes, And I had stood out on the back porch all of 16 and let go of those glass jars. Dozens of them. I stood with broken glass shattered around my feet. No one could tell me how to get the dark, the fear, the ache, the hell out of me. No one could tell me how to find the place where you always felt safe and secure and held. Kneeling, I picked up one of the shards, dragged its sharp edges across my skin, relieved by the red line slowly seeping up like you could drain yourself out of pain. I'd try to cut my way through hurt down to the core of things. Who doesn't know what it's like to smile thinly and say you're fine when you're not, when you're almost faint with pain? Who doesn't know what it's like to smile thinly and say you're fine when you're not, when you're almost faint with pain? There isn't one of us not bearing the wounds from our bloody hurts. There isn't one of us who isn't cut right from the beginning. We're all broken. We're all hurt. It's true for each one of us. And some of us, because of life circumstances, have realized that much sooner and much more strongly than others. Others of us try to paper that or or manage to paper that over for long stretches of time, covering up that brokenness within us, giving the impression to everybody else that everything is fine. Uh, Michael Jordan Uh, who is a much better basketball player than LeBron James will ever be. That's a personal joke for somebody. You can request those during the week. But one of of the words that's been used to describe Michael Jordan is rage. Rage. Uh, When he was young, he was convinced that his father liked his older brother more than he liked Michael. And so he was convinced that if he could just succeed then his father would at least love him equally. And so he's driven to win so that he'll count, so that he'll matter. And, and he's never done that any better than he did on the basketball court. I mean, he was the, the most successful person ever on the basketball court. But now he doesn't have that anymore. He owns an NBA team, but it, it's not quite the same. And so at his induction a few years ago in the, into the NBA Hall of Fame, after going through this kind of litany of the people who have wronged him, it's an amazing speech to listen to and how he's succeeded in spite of them. At the end, he says this, one day you might look up and see me playing the game at 50. And people kind of start chuckling. And he says, oh, don't laugh. And then they laugh. And he says, never say never. And you're thinking, I I think he's probably serious. It was the way that he dealt with the brokenness. It was the way he covered up that pain for years and years. And he says now that it's gone, that he would give anything to, to get it back. He's actually said, 
I'd give up everything, and this is a very rich man, I'd give up everything now to go back and play the game of basketball. It was the object of his faith. It was, it was where he sought healing for what was broken within him. Now, none of us are famous basketball players, at least not that I know of, but we have our own ways of kind of papering over the brokenness that's within us. Gaining popularity, chasing success, having the perfect home, having the perfect designer life, winning the championship. But none of that ever addresses the real brokenness, the real problem at the root, the fact that we have a broken relationship with our Father, a broken relationship with God. The blind man, I think, is a picture of somebody who realizes his brokenness And he comes to the only one who can do something about it because he believes in Jesus. He puts his faith in Jesus and Jesus heals him. And and the phrase here translated that says in verse 52, your faith has made you well. That can also be translated, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. See, this, this physical healing is just a picture of the, the, the inner spiritual healing that we all need. But it's also, I think, a, a foretaste of the type of salvation that Jesus intends to, to bring. It's an advertisement. It's a coming attraction that one day all blind, lame, sick, broken believers in Jesus Christ will be made well, not just spiritually to kind of float around as spirits in the clouds, but will be made physically well and whole, that everything broken will be healed. And that salvation, that total, complete salvation, physically, emotionally, spiritually, that begins when you believe in Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, when you cry out to Jesus for mercy as the blind man did to heal your brokenness, to forgive your sin, to, for, to, to heal your broken relationship with God at the cross by being broken for you. A disciple sees those hurt places in their lives. They see the sin that is within them. And they realize that at the end of the day, only Jesus can deal with that. Only Jesus can deal with that. Only Jesus can free them from their addictions. Only Jesus will hear their cry for mercy. Only Jesus will stop in his tracks when he hears that cry for mercy. Not demanding that they do something. Not demanding that they they atone for their own mistakes. But stopping simply because we have cried out for mercy. Simply because we have put our faith in him. Uh, A disciple, first of all, is someone who believes. Someone who puts their faith in Jesus. But secondly, a disciple is somebody who leaves. I think it's very interesting to contrast this guy with the rich young ruler earlier in the chapter. Uh, When Jesus calls the rich young ruler to sell all that he has and follow him, uh, the rich young ruler, we read, is disheartened and goes away sorrowful because he had great possessions but when jesus calls bartimaeus here in verse 50 it tells us that bartimaeus threw off his cloak and sprang up and ran to jesus now that's a big deal because that cloak would have been everything to him 
That cloak was probably all that he owned other than the clothes that he wore. It would be what he wore to keep warm. It would be like a sleeping bag at night that he slept in. It would be something that he could lay out as he begged for people to throw money on so he could collect that in his cloak. And when Jesus calls him, he tosses it aside and he runs to Jesus. Why does he do that? Why does a blind beggar leave his cloak? Because for everything that that cloak could do for him, he realized that that was nothing compared to what Jesus could do for him. The blind beggar leaves. He leaves. Uh, Some of us have heard about Jesus for years. We've heard this offer of the gospel for years, but we still haven't responded to the call and left. Uh, We're like the the rich young ruler, I think, clinging to something else or to someone else. Clinging to another Savior that we are convinced is the key to healing our brokenness. Uh, The movie Despicable Me, uh, there is a scene where the, the three little girls have been kidnapped and they're on this kind of flying contraption. I hesitate to call it a plane, but it's like some flying vehicle. And Gru is coming to rescue them and he's on another flying vehicle. And, you know, they're about so far apart, and he's trying to get them to make that leap of faith and to jump to him. And the first two girls jump to him, but the third girl won't jump. Why won't she jump? Well, she's holding on to a rail on the other plane or whatever it is, she, she, and she, she, she can't let go of it. She's clinging to it. Why is she clinging to it? Because that's what she's put her faith in. She's, she's put her faith in this pole and she's having a hard time letting go and putting her faith in grew to actually catch her. I want to suggest to you this morning that if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you are putting your faith somewhere else. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you are putting your faith somewhere else. If you can't leave and come to Jesus... It's because you're clinging to something else. Uh, You're not living a faithless life. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, no one is living a faithless life. You're not living a faithless life. Your faith is absolutely directed somewhere. You're saying, success, have mercy on me. Popularity, have mercy on me. Pornography, have mercy on me. Nice, comfortable life, Have mercy on me. And you're you're clinging to that thing. And you're convinced that that thing, whatever it is, that lifestyle, that sexual orientation, that identity that you fashion for yourself, you're convinced that that will make you well. That that's going to make you whole. And so you, you can't let go of it. And the way it actually feels, though, is that it won't let go of you. Um, Michael Jordan again, his the call name, this is fascinating, the call name that his security team uses for him, like Michael's entering the building, his call name is Yahweh, which is the Old Testament Hebrew name for God. Okay? But even this man who lets himself be referred to as Yahweh is clinging to something. He's clinging to something and and he can't leave. He can't play in the NBA any longer, but he's still fiercely 
competitive. Uh, the stories are told that when he was in the league, they would advise the rookies not to play cards with him because he would beat them so badly in cards and take all their money. Somebody beat him in ping pong once, and so he went and learned how to play ping pong, and then he came back and just destroyed the guy. And now he gets into contest with his lawyers over word searches and Sudoku and just trounces them. There's this, this competitiveness he has to win. And he says this, I can't help myself. It's an addiction. You asked for this special power to achieve these heights, and now you got it, and you want to give it back, but you can't. If I could, then I could breathe. He's got this competitive nature that he can't let go of, that that won't let go of him. He's trapped. He can't leave. He can't breathe. Because he's clinging to this in, in, in ways he knows he's clinging to it. The gospel is this. Uh, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that your sins might be forgiven. Jesus will save you. Jesus will make you whole. He will deal with your brokenness. He does love you. The invitation is to leave and to believe, to come to Him. Uh, Again, if you haven't believed that message, I I would just encourage you to, to think about the fact that it's not because you don't have faith. It's because you're actively placing your faith somewhere else. You're actively placing your faith in another Savior. You're you're actively looking somewhere else and saying, whatever it is, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. But the truth is that thing, whatever it is, won't. It won't have mercy on you. It will only beat you down and drive you along and hold you captive. It will never bring you the healing or the mercy or the love that only Jesus can bring to you, the freedom and the restoration that only Jesus can bring to you. It will never die for you. It will never die for you as Jesus has died for you. A disciple believes, a disciple leaves, and a disciple follows. Why is the majority of the, the crowd in our story following Jesus Well, there's excitement, there's a big crowd, he's going to to Jerusalem hopefully to start a revolution, he's doing great things, and they don't have time for this blind beggar to to slow Jesus down, and so they say, hush, be quiet, leave him alone. Why is blind Bartimaeus follow Jesus at the end of our story? Because he made him well. Because he made him well. And so you've got these crowds of people following because of the show. And then you've got blind, now seeing Bartimaeus following Jesus out of gratitude that he made him well. Now, which one of those do you think describes you? If you thought about it, which, which one of those describes you? We're, we're in the South. Uh, it's still relatively culturally acceptable and even expected that we would be in church. Um, are you just following the church crowd, jumping through the religious hoops? Or are you following Jesus because Jesus has made you well? Because Jesus is making you well. How would you tell? Like, How would you really know which one was you? I think one of the ways is we can tell is by looking at our response to blind beggars. How do you respond to blind beggars? 
How do you respond to blind beggars? Are you willing to slow down and to minister to them in the name of Jesus? Are they just these time-consuming projects slowing down our religious train? Uh, the story is told by a, a church planter's wife, I believe, in, in Texas. Uh, they had taken their entire church to feed homeless people in town. And they were feeding 800 homeless people. And they, they really took the whole service down there. And so they had the band and the message and the service. And her husband preached. And in the middle of his preaching, this lady started yelling, screaming, where were all of you when these men were violating me? Where were you? And she said it went on and it was explicit and, and, and she couldn't print or say what all this woman had said. And she says, what did, I, what did I do when this woman started screaming in the middle of my husband's sermon? She says, how did her grief move me? Well, I, I motioned to this guy to, to take care of her. My instinct was to protect the service, to keep everything decent. I mean, a shattered woman screaming during church is just too messy to indulge. And then she said the very next day, she found herself getting ready to speak at a women's retreat. And she was working on the passage that we just read together, that we just looked at together. With blind Bartimaeus screaming at Jesus. And she says, right in the middle of my importance studying to teach others how to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit leveled me. Who was I in this scenario? Not Jesus, mercifully pausing for a blind beggar on his way to the cross. But I was the embarrassed Christ followers who scorned this humiliating interruption during their Christ following and sanitized this awkward confrontation to get on with their holiness. I cried for an hour. I have so far to go. Uh, She says she told this story at a women's retreat. And she also told about a time when she had had gotten it right, when she had actually given away a pair of shoes to somebody who was in need. And without prompting, she said, the women in this large retreat started pouring down the aisles. And she said they were pulling their shoes off. They left jackets, Bibles, purses, diamond necklaces, wedding rings, cameras, iPhones, bags. I've never seen anything like it. Eventually, I just turned off my microphone as hundreds of women laid face down, sobbing, barefoot. The stage was covered in their offerings, falling onto the ground and taking over the room. It filled 70 large moving boxes. I don't have a box for you to put stuff in today. But there is a way to answer the question, which one of these people am I? Am I just in the crowd following or am I actually Bartimaeus following? The way you figure that out is by asking that question, how do I respond to blind beggars? How do I respond to blind beggars? If you know that you too were once a blind beggar with nothing to offer to Jesus and you were simply saved by his mercy as you cried for mercy, your tune will change from hush, he doesn't have time for you, I don't have time for you, to take heart, get up. Jesus is calling you. Don't you want to hear that good news of Jesus? A disciple believes. A disciple leaves. 
and a disciple follows Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we would be those who believe, who see our own brokenness, and that in Jesus Christ you will make us whole, that we would believe and cry for mercy and come to him, that we would leave those false saviors behind, those things that we're clinging on to and refusing to let go of, and that we would indeed follow you, not because it's a southern thing to do, but because you have made us well and you're making us well. Um, We pray all of this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.